this morning I wanted to finish the series, uh, Fighting the Good Fight, and this final message is called Lessons in the Fight. And if you have a Bible, put it down, because we're going to be going so many different places, you better just, you might be best just reading it on the screen. But if you have a Bible, we're going to go through several passages today, and I hope you'll enjoy that. Let's pray as we receive the Word of God this morning. Heavenly Father, as we open up your Word, God, you said your Word is life. Your word is light. It is a path unto our feet. And so, Lord, I pray right now in this moment, we let go of the grocery lists. We let go of what we want to have lunch afterward, God, that we would have attention and focus in this moment to receive the word of God. Because, Lord, we don't just live on food, but we live on this word. And so, Lord, help us now to receive what you have for us, even if it's just one thing that we walk away with saying, you know what, I, God wanted me to hear that. That was instruction and inspiration I needed to walk away with. In Jesus' name, amen. Most of you know that I grew up in Detroit, Michigan. And Detroit, Michigan is like Cleveland, like Pittsburgh, like Chicago. It's a blue-collar town. And, and little did I know when I was born there that it's actually a very rough, tough, gruff kind of town and so you know living in places like that you're inevitably as a kid and even many times as an adult you're going to have to endure defending yourself fighting for yourself uh, sometimes fighting to protect others and eventually you know I'm, and I'm, I'm saying Detroit because that's where I grew up I'm sure even here in Bakersfield or or in Taft you know you're, you're going to get challenged at some point uh, to defend yourself and here's the interesting thing. By my nature, I do not like or enjoy fighting. I know some boys do. I, it's a real high. It's a real rush. When you have that adrenaline, you're punching and you're kicking and you're, I mean, I, I know a lot of my friends, they loved to fight. And it was their nature. They're very aggressive. They're very pushy, very things like that. So, but me, by my nature, I was not. Uh, if I could avoid it, I would. And this is even before I was a Christian, before I was a believer. Uh, it just, it wasn't my thing. But the problem is, you get picked on enough, you get, you know, tagged enough and beaten up enough that eventually even my own parents were like, you know, Tom, we think you got to learn how to defend yourself a little bit. And, and it wasn't something I was very naturally good at. Uh, even to this day, you know, when I, when I, you know, my, my kids will show me a, a, a video of kids fighting at school or, you know, I'll, I'll see a real nasty, you know, clip from UFC or something and it, it breaks my heart. I think, gosh, how, how can two people do that to each other? You know, how can two people made in God's image just take such joy in, in pounding on that image? Uh, but eventually you get pounded enough and it's, it's wise to learn how to either run fast, <laughs> which I was never very fast, or defend yourself. And so I remember there was this kind of older boy in the neighborhood who was, he was a lot like me. Uh, Larry was kind of, you know, he was shorter, kind of nerdy, I'll admit, kind of nerdy. Uh, he's kind of shy, kind of quiet. I was never very quiet, but still, you know, he, he had some attributes that I had, and but I remember, even though he was like a little guy like me, man, nobody messed with him. He was such a good fighter. And, and he always got in fights. I don't know if he enjoyed it or not, but it seemed like every other day 
you know, I'd hear, oh, Larry's going and fighting in the field again. And so I remember going up to him and I'd say, you know, will you teach me how to fight? And I'm like, and I know this is going to hurt and I'm ready for it, but, you know, he's like, I'm not going to fight you. He goes, tell you what, next time I get in a scuffle, you come and you watch and we'll go over it. I mean, this is like, you know, Mr. Miyagi, you know. <laughs> and, and I remember, you know, he, he would just kind of teach me some things so that I could defend myself whenever I was getting picked on, which, which was getting more and more and more. And, and in fact, at the end of his sort of training, I got quite good at it. I got quite good at defending myself. And unfortunately, uh, as I went into eighth, ninth, and tenth grade, for some reason, I had some real anger issues, and uh, I wasn't always very honorable. And, and so I, I got into a lot of scuffles. But I, I remember, you know, watching him, and he said, you know. The thing that is important is not whether you win or lose, but you just let people know you will defend yourself. You will fight back if somebody messes with you. And, and, and so that's what I really focused on. It was not so much whether I won or lost, but whether that person who was attacking me ever wanted to attack me again <laughs> after the scuffle. And it really built some confidence. In fact, another good story to kind of introduced this was in World War II, uh, Brigadier General Teddy Roosevelt, who was the son of President Roosevelt, uh, he was one of the field generals. He's actually uh, older. He had a heart condition. He never should have been on the beaches, but he stormed the beaches of Normandy. And there was an American platoon that was uh, sort of pinned down by a house and a German rifle fire. And they, they, the general came up and said, what are you guys doing? They said, well, there's, they're shooting at us. We don't, know how to, you know, we don't know how to get around them. He said, you don't know how to get around them. So he, he kind of said, okay, you three go this way, you three go this way, you guys lay suppressing fire, you with the grenades, you come with me. And they went and attacked the house and they cleared it out of Germans. Afterward, the platoon was standing around and they expected to be reprimanded by the general. But he just came up to them and he said these famous words. He said, okay, men, do you understand? Do you know how to do it now? Next time, do you know how to do this? Okay, let's go win this war. As we close our series today, we're closing our series not so much in how to fight on a Detroit schoolyard or fight on the beaches of Normandy, but how to fight spiritually. Because when you look at the Bible, God does really the same thing for us in many ways. Whenever God fights in the Bible... It is never to determine whether God will win or God will lose, right? I mean, when we see a boxing match or we see some sort of match, we don't know who the winner's going to be. But when God fights, do we know who the winner's going to be? Yeah, we know who the winner's going to be, right? Okay, so you got to almost step back and ask yourself, so then why does God fight in the Bible? Why is there conflicts that God himself gets involved in if we always just know he's going to win anyway? Well, some of it is God cares for us and wants to bring the victory to us. But another part of that is every time God enters a fight or a conflict, it is to teach us something. It is to show us something. And this morning, I'm going to give you four examples of where God gets in a fight where God gets into a conflict and what God is trying to teach us out of that conflict. 
He wins all of them. But in the victory, what is the lesson in the fight that we are to walk home with? And so for the first one, if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Genesis chapter 14. This is when God fought for Abraham. Uh, Otherwise, it will be on the screen here. And I'll give you a little bit of the context. This is about 2000 B.C. uh, when Abraham engaged in this battle. So it's about 4,000 years ago. Abraham is in the promised land, him and his tribe, and uh, he's entering into a conflict. The conflict really finds him, but he knows he has to defend his tribe or else they'll be wiped out by a king called Cater Laomer. And Cater Laomer, he's a scheming kind of king. He doesn't just go and fight Abraham by himself. He gets three other pagan kings to join him so that the odds are in his favor. When Abraham faces Cater Laomer, Abraham has hundreds of soldiers. Cater Laomer has thousands of soldiers. But there's one major difference in the battle. What do you think it is? Abraham's got God. You and God are always the majority. You and God, the odds are always in your, may the odds ever be in your favor? No. You got God, the odds are ever in your favor, all right? Abraham's got God, and he wins a decisive victory over three kings. In fact, the victory is so decisive, Abraham has a hard time logistically transporting all of the spoils of war back. God has just increased Abraham's bank account probably by a factor of 100. I mean, Abraham was, you know, he was kind of a small little wealthy chieftain, and now he's a major economic force in ancient Canaan as a result of this victory. Now I want to pick it up at verse 17 so that we can learn the lesson from the fight. Because obviously, with those odds, God intervenes and grants Abraham the victory, and we'll see this in the verse, ascribes that to him. And verse 17 says this, after Abraham returned from defeating Cater Laomer and the three other kings and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to Vedum in the valley of Shaveh. That's the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. What does that remind you of bread and wine? Communion, right? So Melchizedek comes out and they're going to have bread and wine together. Whenever the Bible foreshadows something that's going to happen later, you want to pay close attention to it, all right? Melchizedek brings out bread and wine, and he was the priest of God Most High. The the Hebrew word for that is Elohim. It's It's the big word for the God, the creator God, God Almighty, God who is over all things, all the universe, the God, the God, the God, the God, the God of gods type thing. And so he's the priest of God Most High, the one true God. And he blessed Abraham and said this, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies to your hand. What is Melchizedek telling Abraham? God won the battle for you, right? God delivered them into your hands. Verse 21, then this is almost out of nowhere. Verse 21, then the king of Sodom said to Abraham, give me the people. 
Sodom wants the people for slaves. And, 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 and that was one of the practices they did in those days. If you went, became a prisoner, you became a slave. It says, give me the people, but keep the goods for yourself. Now, is the king of Sodom in any position to bargain here? No. Who won the battle? And who did he win it for? Abraham. Well, God, too. Yeah, I know he did win it for himself, but, but Abraham. So Abraham says to the king of Sodom in verse 22, with raised hand, <laughs> he's like, <laughs> this is like swearing to God here. With raised hand, I have sworn an oath to God, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a strap of sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abraham rich. What does God want us to learn from this fight? First of all, it's this. God is our source of blessing, not people. God is our source of blessing, not people. God may use people to bless you. He often does. But he wants our approach and our perspective not to be that it's the person who has the power to bless us or the person who is blessing us, but that God is blessing us through that person, that God is using this particular person to bring that blessing. God is our source of blessing, not people. Abraham, with a few hundred men, defeated an army of thousands. And Abraham would not let the pagan king of Solomon take any credit for something that God clearly did. And by saying that, he's saying to the king of Sodom, people don't prosper me, God prospers me. Second thing we can come out of, which is very clear here, is when God blesses you, when God prospers you, when God grants you the victory, tithe on that blessing. Tithe on that blessing. Abraham gave the king of Melchizedek, gave him a tenth of all of the spoils and all the victory that God had brought him. Somewhat as a form of worship, but somewhat as a way to give back to God because God was his source. And then the third thing is, some people you give financial blessings to and some people you make financial boundaries from. Sometimes, even as Christians, we can think, we hear verses like, give to all who ask you and hold nothing back from those that make request of you. Well, the fact of the matter is, that is true in general principle. But there are some people that God will say, no, 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 you need to make a financial boundary with this person because remember the king of Sodom had no intention of using these people for the purposes of God he was a wicked pagan king whose city would be sovereignly destroyed by God in Abraham's lifetime hasn't happened yet but it's going there why do you think he wanted the people do I need to tell you what was going on in Sodom at the time that's why he wanted the people and not the goods. It was a city that was in demonic decay, and God says, don't give them a red cent. Don't support that for a moment. So you got two kings, one that's anti-God and one that's worshiping God. And Abraham says, to you, I'm giving a tenth. I'm tithing off of my spoils. To you, I'm, not, I'm putting my hand out saying, there's not going to be any transactions between us because you will never say, you have prospered me. God has prospered me. Amen? 
That's the thing we can learn from the first battle. The second battle uh, occurs in Exodus chapter 17. Uh, This is in about 1450 BC. It's about 550 years later. Uh, Not that there weren't scuffles in between now and then, but but no major wars. This was Abraham's major war. And now Moses is about to embark on one of his first major wars. And he's going to take on one of the first major tribes in the promised land that God had sort of wanted him to clear out. They're called the Amalekites. And the Amalekites are, are part of the Canaanites. They're part of that vortex of evil and vortex of human suffering that was happening at that time. And God is essentially going to use the armies of Israel to judge them and clear them out of the land. And so uh, Moses uh, tasks Joshua to be the general. He says, go and find young men who aren't afraid and are willing to learn how to fight and go out there and let's begin our moving in to the promised land. And of course, Joshua says, you're going to come with us, right? And Moses says, I'll be there. But Moses positions himself above the battlefield, watching it, and he is essentially going to be the, the, the prayer prophet warrior over the battle. Now, the interesting thing is, as Moses begins to stretch out his hands and pray, the armies of Israel are just being victorious. They're defeating the Amalekites. you got to remember, these are slave boys and men who had never fought a war in their life against trained Amalekite soldiers. And as Moses lifts his hand, it is the newbies who win and the veterans who are on retreat. However, in verse 11, Exodus 17, verse 11 and 12, as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning over the Amalekites. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Abram and Hur, they held his hands up. Abram on one, or Hur on one side, and Aaron on the other, each taking an arm, so that Moses would not break his posture of prayer before the Lord. By a little, little bit of a side note, part of the reason why I raise my hands in worship and encourage all of you to, it's a posture of prayer before the Lord. It is. It's a, it's a posture of prayer and respect. It's saying, God, you are higher. I am lawyer, lo- lower, <laughs> not a lawyer. I am lower, and I rejoice in that. I rejoice in that. I make you high. I lift you high. You are higher. I am lower, and I lift my hands upward to you because you are higher than me. So this is what they're doing. Moses is standing here in this battle, and they're each holding his arms up. And while they held his arms up, they're winning. What does God want us to learn in this fight? Our battles are won in prayer. Our battles are won in prayer. If you don't believe that, then the only alternative is our battles are won in self. Self-sufficiency, self-ability, self-sustaining. And I can tell you right now, you may win a few that way. I know some of you are strong. Some of us are very strong. But life will eventually grind you, tear you down, and spit you out. You won't win them all. Look at the men who tried. Look at Hitler. He lasted 15 years. Look at Napoleon. There's no reason why Napoleon shouldn't rule 
all of Western Europe and Russia. And yet, look what happened at Waterloo. Even the best of men who were self-sufficient eventually got ground down and chewed out and spit out by this thing we call life. The point that God is trying to make is our battles are won in prayer. And as Moses' hands were lifted up, do you know what Aaron and her were learning? The battle is won in prayer. It wasn't how many swords the Israelites had. It wasn't how good they were at swinging it. When Moses' hands were up, the battle was being won. And when they dropped, they lost. So prayer does affect change. I know a lot of times I say prayer may not always affect your circumstances, but it changes you. But I really need to balance that out by saying, <clears throat> yes, sometimes prayer affects your circumstances too. <clears throat> What's the second thing God wants us to learn from this story? God doesn't want us to fight alone. Ladies, not so much. Ladies are pretty good about gathering an army of prayer partners when they go through something, you know. Uh, there, there'll be an email out to Facebook or 25 lady prayer chain, and I see it, you know. All the women are just, we're praying, 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 praying. But for some reason, I don't know if it's even as Christians, we men struggle with self-sufficiency, but when we're going something, we almost want to make it private. I'm, I'm praying through this, Pastor Tom. Who you got praying for you? Well, well, me and the Lord, we're doing good. Okay, but who's your Aaron? Who's your her? Who's holding your hands up when you're getting tired in prayer? Who's holding your hands up so that the battle can be won in prayer and in victory rather than walking around in defeat? God doesn't want us to fight alone. God didn't want Moses to fight alone. God wanted to teach Moses. Moses, you're great, but you need Aaron and her because without them, your army's going to lose. Third story. This one comes out of, <laughs> I rarely speak out of this book, Second Chronicles chapter 20. Uh, again, this is another probably six to seven hundred years after uh, the major battle with the Amalekites. And this is after King David, after King Solomon, uh, after the, 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 the kingdom kind of splits in two. You've got Israel to the north and Judea, Judah to the south. And uh, one of the kings of Judah is called Jehoshaphat, and he's a king. And there are Moabites, Ammonites, and men from Mount Seir who are attacking and invading Judah because Judah was smaller, but Judah also had a lot of fertile farmland and great access to the coast. So Judah's always been a land that people want to conquer. It, it, it's a very good economic prize. So these Moabites and Ammonites and men from Mount Seir, who they're not always friends, they actually get together, form an alliance, and think it will be very easy to just wipe out the Jews and get rid of them and take their land. So King Jehoshaphat is the king, and of course he's tasked with the national defense. He marches his army out there. It's about uh, 10,000 to 40,000. You, you get the theme of when God fights. You know, When God fights, you always seem to have less than what you need in and of yourself. 
and the enemy always seems to have three or four times what you have against you. So King Jehoshaphat marches his army out. It's very clear on both sides of the battlefield who has the advantage. And this is where King Jehoshaphat, who is, who's listening to God, he says, I have an idea. We're not going to tuck tail and run. They'll just chase us. I have an idea. We're going to send out our praise and worship team in front of the infantry. Now, at that point, you know, Joy's going, what? Uh, wait a minute. You're going to send us ahead of the spears? You're going to send us ahead of the shields? Uh, and what are we supposed to do out there? You want us to sing Kumbaya? I mean, what? what's going on here? You know, I'm sure all the singers and musicians are going, wait, what? <laughs> We've never done this before. This is new, you know? And so it says here in verse 21, after consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and praise him for the splendor of his holiness, and they went out at the head of the army, singing, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. And as they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. The Ammonites and the Moabites revolted against the men from Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them and then turned on each other. And after, the, it's after they finished slaughtering the men from Seir, they helped destroy one another. What can we gather from this? This one's very easy. Worship God before the fight. Worship God before the fight. Send out the prayer. That's why we do praise and worship first. So that any sort of spiritual funkiness that the enemies try to bring in, it gets cleared out by the worship. And our hearts are ready to receive this food that God has for us this morning. Second thing, God can get our enemies to turn on each other. God can get our enemies to turn on each other. It was about 10 years ago, maybe, maybe nine, uh, and somebody from our church, they came in, they worked in an office, and she said, Tom, I have two ladies who are over me, and they are brutal. They are brutal toward me, and I'm pretty sure they want to get me fired, and I'm th I don't know what to do. Maybe I should just quit and go get another job. And at first, I, at first I thought, well, you can do that, sure. But something stopped me. I remember going, you know what? No, wait, wait. I don't, I don't have peace with that. For some reason, I think you need to stay. First of all, finding a job is never a fun thing to do. You've got a job. God, God gave you this job. We, I remember when God gave her that job, and I, I was just scratching my head going, you know what? Something does not compute here. So I said, sister, Right there in my office. Let's get on our knees and pray. So we got on our knees on the, on, the, on the padded cement here. And we're just praying. God, we got these two ladies. They're bringing a lot of persecution. And, and sister here is just trying to work, just trying to get her job. She's not trying to make any fights and all that. And we, we just prayed for God to intervene in that situation. Well, I didn't see her the next Sunday, but she came back two weeks later. 
Pastor Tom, you will never believe what happened. I said, what? She said, those two ladies that were above me, they got in a nasty fight right in the office. It got up to the owner. The owner fired them on the spot and gave me one of the jobs of my former supervisors. Amen? <laughs> Don't mess. Don't mess with God. <laughs> Finally, number four. When God fought for you. God has personally fought for you many times that you've never even seen. God personally fought for his people more than the four times I'm just sharing. There's other, I could have used other stories. I just used those because they seem to encapsulate what I wanted to finish the series with. But God's always bringing victory and always teaching us. But, but there is one decisive moment in history where God fought personally for you that is above and beyond any other thing your life may ever touch. And that is when Jesus went to the cross. That wasn't just a sacrifice. I like what Jack Hayford calls it, the battle of Calvary. There was a war being fought between God and the devil. And Jesus came in as the decisive victor in a battle that won the war. Oh, we're still seeing the battles, you know, sort of being fought, but just, just like after the United States Army and the Allies won Normandy, the war in Europe was over. I mean, it took another 12 months, but the war in Europe was over after that. After we got a foothold and thousands of troops and thousands of tanks and everything's pouring into France, Germany was done. And, and that's the same thing for us right now. The devil, the enemy, it's finished. It's done. We're, we're, we're just having these battles rage out until Jesus comes back and says, all right, the war is over now. It's done. But it was on the cross where Jesus nailed our sins, the enemy's power, the enemy's right and authority, all evil and suffering, nailed on the cross with him. These verses I'm about to read you, I want, make no mistake, they're some of the most powerful, three of the most powerful verses you'll ever find in the Bible. They come out of a letter, a book, uh, uh, the letter of Paul to the Colossians. Very few people read Colossians. It's so small, it seems insignificant. We think of Romans or Ephesians, all these other great books that Paul wrote. Don't discount Colossians. It's got three of the most powerful verses in the Bible in Colossians. Let's read them together. Can you stand up with me? Stand up. Let's read this together. Here we go. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Amen? Come on. Come on. Come on. You may be seated. Look at, look at, look at some things here. God made you alive. It meant we were dead. 
God, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins. I love that. You know why? I'm still struggling with sinning. So I'm glad that not only the ones I've sinned already and the ones I have yet to sin are all forgiven. He says, having canceled the charge of our legal and legally, we were in debt to God and there's no way to pay it. Translation, no heaven. Jesus canceled that indebtedness. Translation, go to heaven. Isn't that wonderful? Which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. I love how I love Paul's imagery. Everything that has ever stood against you, Jesus nailed it to the cross. I'll tell you a story. When I was struggling with COVID, my wife, it was my wife that did this anyway. My wife came in and she put on worship music. She said, Tom, this was like day 12 of 102, 103 fevers. And I was beginning to get delirious. I was getting delirium. You can ask her. I was beginning to lose my mind a little because fevers for 112 days over 102, you just start going nuts. So she brought in and she started putting worship music down. And she started praying. And she said, Tom, I just felt God tell me something. I said, what? She said, he is taking all of your COVID and everything else that is in your body and he is nailing it to the cross with him right now. He's taking it with him to the cross. I remember thinking, man, that's good. I wish I'd have come up with that one. That is good, Tanya. That'll preach, you know. That was, that's good. Six hours later, the next morning, woke up. Something was different. I felt better. I felt better. I wasn't totally healed. Took another few days to inch out of it. But something broke that night because Jesus nailed it to the cross. Everything that is against you, Jesus nailed it to the cross. And that's where our ultimate victory comes from. What does God want us to learn from this fight? Right here. It's the first Sunday of the month. We're celebrating communion. Jesus sacrificed his body. What was nailed to the cross? It wasn't a sign, although a sign was nailed to the cross. It was his body. This right here was nailed to the cross. And what dripped down from it? Right here. I know, it's morbid. It's horrible to think about. But Jesus has told us never forget it. Because this is our ultimate victory. This is our ultimate answer to every prayer right here. It's been nailed to the cross, just like Paul said. What does God want us to learn from this fight? First of all, the body means we're no longer condemned. Jesus' body was condemned for us. So we have been restored to a right status with God. 
Your status with God is this. You can come to him. You can talk to him. You can ask to him. You can even gripe with him. You can do whatever you want with him because you are now his son and his daughter. We have been restored to a right status. What does the blood say? That we have been forgiven. We have not only been restored to a right status, we have also been restored to a right relationship. So that even if we do blow it, right here, we are forgiven. The sins we've done, the sins we have yet to do, the sins we're doing. Now, that's not an excuse to sin more, but it does give you peace when you blow it. Amen? Now, I remember, I'll keep these for myself now that I've touched them. I remember once, uh, up in Washington, no, no, it was here in California, a long time ago, though. I went to a pastor's cadre, and uh, there was a friend of mine who was another senior pastor. He was roughly my age. We were both in our late 30s at the time. And we were both young pastors, didn't know what we were doing, still know what we're doing. And, uh, and he came up to me. He's like, hey, after this session, can I talk to you? I said, sure. So we, we kind of go out on the benches up at Old Old Ranch. We go out on one of the benches, and he, he, whips, out, he whips out some communion things. Like, what in the world are we doing? This ain't church, you know? And he said, can I confess something to you? I said, sure. And he, he confessed a sin to me. It wasn't a sin that would have disqualified him from being a pastor, so don't, don't think anything like that. But it was a, a worthy sin to confess, you know? And I received his confession. I said, well, I actually, can I, can I spill the beans on some of the things that's going on in my heart? We kind of had this, like, session. He said, will you take communion with me? That was an odd thought for me. I've never done it like that. I'm thinking, well, we're not in church. It's not the first Sunday. You know, I mean, I'm going through like, uh, are we allowed to do that? You know, I remember thinking to myself, is God okay with this? You know, are we like violating something, you know? And, and, and he's like, no, no, no. He's like, what we just confessed and prayed for. And he held up, this is our victory. And I just want to stamp the victory over what we just confessed and prayed about. Right there on that park bench, we took communion. It was one of the most powerful experiences with communion I've ever had. As you leave church today, I have bought you some communion cups. But they're not for you to take here. I want you to take them home. Maybe you do this husband and wife. Maybe you do this with somebody else son or a daughter or a co-worker or a friend. But I want to challenge you to take communion outside of church and to do it in the context of, of confessing something you want to see more victory in your life in. Maybe you've got some appetites or addictions you want to be freer on. Some attitudes that you need to get adjusted or some abuses that have happened to you that you need to get over telling you right now this is where your victory is over all those nailing them to the cross and we celebrate that nailing to the cross right here with this we're going to take communion in a moment but i want to summarize these four points very quickly with a take home if you flip over your discussion sheet you can fill these in real quick first point is this number one Give to the Lord because God alone is our source. 
hey, I, that tithe check each month, it pains me just as much as it pains you. <laughs> but I'll tell you this, it would pain me even more to keep it for myself. God is my spoils of victory, and I want to give God his due. Second of all, number two, told you these would go quick. <laughs> Prayer affects change, so never pray it alone. You're not some noble hero if you keep it all to yourself and let nobody else pray for you. That's just not the example God has set for us. If you're going through something or your family's going through something, you know, let everybody else know. We've got a prayer chain. It goes out to 25, 28 different people. You know, let us know. Let, let uh, Rachel know. Rachel's here today, I think. I saw her. Yeah, right there. Let Rachel know. She'll put in an email. You, you'll instantly get at least 10 to 15 people who will see it right then and there, and they'll start praying for you. We were never meant to pray through things alone. Use this family to help you and encourage you. Number three, worship. Number three, worship out the problem before you fight the good fight. You won't feel like it. On day 12 of 102 fever with COVID, I didn't feel like it. Thank God my wife, I don't know if she felt like it, but she chose it. She said, Tom, this is what we're doing. We are worshiping, we are praying, and we are towing the line here. And we just chose to do it. It's almost midnight. We chose to do it. I couldn't even sit up. We chose, you choose to do it. It's, worship is not always something you feel. Those worship singers, they didn't feel like going in front of the infantry. I can tell you that right now. Oh, man, what's the king doing? But they chose to do it. And as they began to sing, they saw the miracle before their eyes. As I woke up the next morning, I experienced the miracle in my body. And then finally, number four, take communion to proclaim God's victory in your life. I'm sending you home with something like what we take for communion here at church. But communion can be any combination. It can be pizza and Coke. It can be French bread and lemonade. It can be whatever you use as the elements to remember the triumph of Christ. And when you do that, you release faith, power, and resolve in the fight. Amen? Amen.